within our life. And so we're in Jonah 2. If you have your Bibles or the house Bibles, it's on page 774. And we are in this series called To Pursuit, uh, which is a story of a merciful God pursuing some of the most unmerciful people. And so just kind of some context, the past couple of weeks, Rafe and Kenson have introduced us to the story of Jonah, a prophet or a spokesperson of the Lord. You know, in chapter one, we saw Jonah disobey God's command to go to Nineveh, and he ran away from the presence of God. But God decides to pursue Jonah with a storm, a storm so powerful enough to wipe them out. So Jonah inevitably confesses that he is running from God and tells the sailors to throw him overboard to stop the storm. The sailors, with no other choice, decide to throw Jonah overboard, and then the storm stops. And then at the end of chapter 1, we get a famous fish swallowing Jonah. Now we get to chapter 2. And if you look in your Bibles, you notice that chapter 2 isn't in paragraph form anymore. It's in stanzas like a poem. In chapter two, we take a break from the fast-paced narrative in in chapter one, and we enter now into a slow, reflective prayer in Jonah two. And so with that in mind, let's read uh, the prayer. It reads, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again, look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains, and I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever." Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you that you are a great and mighty God. You control the waves of the ocean and that you can even control a fish to swallow your prophet up. And God, you pursue us. And so God, as we are reading your word today and as we dig deep in, God, I pray that you may also dig deep into our hearts, reveal in us what is truly lying there so that we may know that we truly need a savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, about two weeks ago, one of my all-time favorite childhood movies celebrated its 25th anniversary, The Sandlot. I don't know if you've watched it, but it is my, one of my all-time favorite movies. I've probably watched it about 50 or 60 times. But for those who haven't seen it, The Sandlot tells a story of a new boy in town, Scotty Smalls who desperately wants to fit in with the neighborhood boys. And because of this, the neighborhood boys love baseball, and so he wanted to love baseball too, and so he tried to learn how to play. Eventually, with the help of Benny the Jet Rodriguez, Smalls joins the group. You know, one day, Benny, he he knocks the guts out of a baseball, and it gets torn into pieces, and he gets angry, like, man, guys, we can't play baseball anymore. Smalls volunteers to grab his dad's baseball so that they can keep playing. 
You know, upon arrival, Smalls takes a bat, he swings it, he knocks it right out of the park, right into the backyard of the beast. A terrifying dog that has become a legend for supposedly eating human beings. Since then, no one has ever gotten a ball out of the beast's domain. Then Smalls breaks down and reveals that the ball he had just knocked out was extremely valuable, later finding out that it was signed by none other than Babe Ruth, one of the most legendary baseball players in baseball history. The group gathers together and they determine to save that ball and save Small's stepfather from eventually killing him for taking that prized ball. The boys put their heads together and they use all these things to get the ball back. They use a wooden stick, that didn't work. They use a a pot attached to a wooden stick, that didn't really work. They get more clever, so they use a vacuum cleaner and fail. They use a harness and drop down, but still fail. They use a motorized catapult, all ending in failure. Nothing they could do could save that ball from the beast. Church, have you ever felt like the Sandlot crew before? Have you ever been in a situation where you desperately needed someone to rescue you or something to rescue you? Maybe it was simply a flat tire, a a twisted ankle, or a, a relational breakup. Or maybe it was something more serious like financial debt, uh, a car accident, or maybe even a sickness or cancer. No matter when or how, all of us will experience life circumstances where we need someone or something to save us. You know, as we approach Jonah 2, his prayer offers a window to what our hearts and our minds are going through when we experience life-threatening situations. And Jonah's experience is not too far from you and me. So to help order our time this morning, I want to focus on three recognitions that Jonah needed to experience true salvation, which I believe is what we as Christ followers need to recognize as well. So the first one, he was drowning. He was drowning. And the second one, he deserved to die. And the last one, he needs a deliverer. Let's start with the first recognition. He was drowning. And if you look at Jonah's prayer, about two-thirds of the entire content is reflecting upon his experience drowning in the raging sea. You know, he's in the belly of the fish, but he is looking back to when he was about to die. And to help kind of understand this emotional turmoil of Jonah's life-threatening situation, I want to read verse 3 and 6 again. And this time, I'm actually going to read uh, a different translation for us, kind of like how Marvin prayed that prayer. I'm going to read a more, uh, a more loose mo- modern translation from the Message Bible. And I-, I think it kind of gets us a better picture of what Jonah was experiencing. And it's behind me on the screen, too, if you want to follow along. It reads from verse 3, In trouble, deep trouble, I prayed to God. He answered me. From the belly of the grave, I cried, Help! You heard my cry. You threw me into the ocean's depths, into a watery grave, with ocean waves, ocean breakers thrown out, ocean breakers crashing over me. I said, I have been thrown away, thrown out, out of your sight. I'll never again lay eyes on your holy temple. Ocean gripped me by the throat. The ancient ancient abyss grabbed me and held tight. My head was all tangled in seaweed at the bottom of the sea where the mountains take root. 
I was as far down as a body can go, and the gates were slamming shut behind me forever. Notice how the prayer from verse 3 to 6, and notice this imagery of Jonah just sinking further and further and further to the bottom of the ocean. Notice the fear, the sorrow, the just darkness in that time. You know, I couldn't find any commentators mentioning this, but I wouldn't be surprised if Jonah really wasn't able to swim as well. I mean, he grew up in desert lands. He didn't have the local YMCA to help him teach how to swim as a kid. Imagine if you were Jonah in this situation. What emotions would you be feeling right now? What would be going through your mind? You know, there was no question that Jonah knew that he was drowning to his death. But I have a question for you. Do you realize that you are also drowning as well? You know, the reason Jonah is drowning in the Mediterranean Sea is not because he ran away from God, but it's because he disobeyed God's direct command. Jonah rebelled. He sinned against God. You know, sin is any thought, word, or action done against the will of God. So for some of us, like Jonah, we are drowning in the sea of our consequences because we have been in rebellion against God. Maybe you are drowning in the consequences of frustration and anxiety because you cannot help but desire and covet the lifestyles of those you work with or those you see around you. Maybe you are drowning in the consequences of emptiness and insignificance because you prioritize that next big job or you care about what that person thinks about you or you want that next big paycheck instead of loving God and your neighbor. Maybe you are drowning in the consequences of regret and despair because you were selfish and you did some hateful things towards a friend or a neighbor instead of loving him as yourself. You know, sin is like a cancer that infects our heart, our relationships, and society at large. No matter how much you do to try to defeat it, it comes back like a vicious cycle. You know, Jonah was trapped here too. He was so consumed with the thought that running away from God was the right decision, that the Ninevites, they didn't deserve mercy. They were evil. Like Jonah, many of us are stuck and trapped and drowning and the results of our own disobedience before God. There are many other consequences of sins that result in addictions and brokenness and pains and sufferings and even death. These aren't God-sent storms like in Jonah 1, but these are self-inflicted wounds of our own sin and disobedience. Our disobedience leads to our drowning. You know, but then I'm sure there are some of you in this room that do not believe you are drowning. You don't believe you're drowning in sin. You, you deny that you are a bad person or that you have ever really run from God. You know, when I, when I was six years old, uh, my, my mom bought me a brand new box of these Korean crayons. They were kind of like these colored pencil and crayon hybrid that you would twist up and down. My mom told me that I could use these crayons and color on any kind of paper that I wanted to but I could not color on her walls. You know, that made sense as a six-year-old, right? That made sense. But after going through a few pieces of paper, I saw that wall, and it looked so appealing to me. It was so large, so white. I could fit everything I wanted on that wall. Why limit my creativity? 
So for the next few hours, I create my masterpiece. There, were, there was a spaceship, there was a space station, there were trains, animals, whole bunch of things. It didn't make much sense, you know, I, I was only six. And so I had finished it. And so then after that, I walk away and I do some other things. And in a few minutes, I hear my mom yell, what happened? And as soon as she approaches me, she tells me, who did this? What happened? The first thing I say, Timmy did it. Timmy did it. Now, Timmy is my three-year-old younger brother. He had no idea what was coming for him. And I'm pretty sure he didn't get a crayon until he was like five or six. But what's at the heart of my response? What's at the heart of my six-year-old response? Denial. My masterpiece, it didn't hurt anyone. I just colored on a wall. But it was in direct disobedience to what my mom had told me. And even when I was confronted with my disobedience, my first reaction was to deny it and blame someone else. And some of us here today are straight up denying that we have done anything wrong. But 1 John 1.8 reminds us that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And in Romans 3.23, it also says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, we are so quick to deny our own sin and blame others for their sins. You know, we justify and rationalize our actions or our inactions. And this is exactly what Jonah did when he didn't go to Nineveh. He rationalizes that Nineveh deserves to die for their sin. But Jonah is completely blind to his own sin of racism, of hate, and disobedience. Only when Jonah hits the water and almost experiences death, does he recognize his blindness? Our disobedience and our denial always leads to our drowning. The first step towards true salvation is to recognize that we are all drowning. Let's move to the second one, that Jonah deserved to die. You know, in Jonah's entire prayer, he knew that he deserved to die. In the Old Testament law, Jonah knew that disobedience to God is punishable by death. You know, in verse 5, it says, the water is closing over me to take my life. And in verse 6, he says, the bars closed upon me forever. And most commentators believe that these bars are metaphors for the gates of Hades, which in that time represented that death was knocking on your door. You know, Jonah recognized something that many of us in our culture and society may forget. We forget that God is righteous and holy and pure. God cannot be in the same atmosphere as sin. So for him, all sin is punishable by death. Jonah knew this. Do we know this as well? But for us in our society, our temptation is to minimize sin. It's to minimize death. And this could look like a few different ways for us. You know, some of us think that we can actually save ourselves by our own means. You try to get out of drowning by being excellent swimmers. You try to Michael Phelps your way out of your situations. You know, you may rely on your own spirituality to save yourself. You put your trust solely on your own biblical knowledge or spiritual disciplines like church attendance or fasting or never breaking any God's commandments. Or maybe you rely on your good works to save yourself. 
You are kind to your neighbors and your coworkers. You volunteer every work, every week at, at GRIP or at a local homeless shelter. You support five compassion children and give over 10% to your church. Now, don't get me wrong here. These are not bad things. These are good and godly practices that all of us should be doing in our lives. But can these spiritual activities or these good works be enough to save you from your death? No matter how much spiritual bleach you use, it won't be enough to wash you clean. It can't be done on our own. But then there are others of you who think you can just avoid death altogether. You don't try to get out of drowning, you just float. You know, in the U.S., we do our best to avoid pain and death. We take the highest amount of pain medication than any other country in the world. We spend the highest amount on healthcare. And we have more elderly patients who live alone with physical disabilities and limitations in nursing homes and who eventually die alone. We don't mind seeing death occur on a television screen or our video game screens. But once it gets too personal, too close, we avoid pain and death by building walls of distance and set ourselves apart from it. But when we are confronted with it, we are filled with terror and confusion. We don't know what to do, resulting in many people being unable to die really well. Why? Because death, it's uncomfortable. It's painful. It's messy. It's unpredictable. It's downright scary. When death is avoided, death does not become real to us. We are content with floating in the storm of death with goggles that are colored in with a black permanent marker. But church, we need to see that death, that death is real. Jonah reminds us that without death in our foresight, we won't recognize that we need to be saved. Without death, we won't have any need of a savior. So the reality of death, it brings us to our knees. It brings us to cry for help. It brings us to give up everything for a chance to experience true salvation. Which leads me to my third point. Jonah knew he needed a deliverer. He needed a deliverer. You know, when we look back at verse 7, it reads, When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. You know, when Jonah prays with the holy temple in mind, we need to look at 2 Chronicles 6, 29 and 31 for some context of what he was doing here. And it reads, when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people Israel, being aware of their afflictions and pains and spreading out their hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and deal with everyone according to all they do, since you know their hearts, for you alone know the human heart so that they will fear you and walk in obedience to you all the time they live in the land you gave our ancestors. You know, the holy temple is where God hears the deepest and most earnest prayers of his people. Jonah was desperately calling out to the only God to not only save him from his impending death, but to also forgive him for this disobedience that he had committed before God. Jonah's desperation to be saved, it leads him to confession. It leads him to repentance. You know, in Hebrew, the original language the uh, Old Testament is written in, 
it, tr- it uses the word repent, but it's mostly translated as the w- word turn back or turn around or turning back to God. So in verse 8 through 9, Jonah makes his repentance to God. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Jonah calls every idol or anything that he had previously worshipped or held onto as empty and powerless. He commits to turn away from his disobedience and make a complete 180-degree turn toward God so that he could experience his steadfast love. You know, notice that Jonah's repentance is not just so God can forgive his past disobedience, but notice in verse 9 that his repentance is also making vows and sacrifices back to God. In other words, Jonah's repentance is a recommitment to live out in full obedience and worship toward the God who he is asking to save him. True repentance includes both confession and devotion. One cannot be done without the other. Then after this, God remembers Jonah. God hears his cry from his heavenly throne, and God does something about it. Jonah needed a deliverer, and when he was in the bottom of the ocean with no way out, no one else to save him, the only one that could have saved him stepped in, and God rescued Jonah with the fish. But he doesn't stop there. God saved Jonah by more than just grabbing him from the jaws of death. When Jonah declares salvation belongs to the Lord, in the end of verse 9, Jonah also worships God because of the salvation Jonah received from his spiritual death. You see, Jonah should have been, as in verse 4, cast away from God's sight. But in God's mercy and grace, God brings him near. And we'll see in chapter 3 next week that Jonah gets a second chance to live and obey God once again. God doesn't just care about Jonah's life. God also cares that Jonah walks in obedience and in relationship with him. So in this prayer, though it sounds depressing and sad, Jonah ends with joy. He, own, he, he ends with thanksgiving. He ends with celebration because God has saved him. Just as God saved the pagan sailors back in chapter 1, God chose to save a disobedient and unfaithful prophet through a fish. So that is why Jonah is proclaiming, it is God who saves and salvation belongs to the Lord. But church, we are all like Jonah too. We were all drowning in the sea because of our disobedience and sin before God. We went further down by denying our wickedness and blaming others for their sins while not recognizing our own. Sin has become a weight that kept bringing us further and further and further down into the depth of the ocean and to our death. We can't save ourselves. We would have drowned all alone, and the gates of hell and death would shut us out forever and ever. Who would save us? You know, the, the Sandlot crew had also run out of options, too. Uh, they, they, too, thought that nothing could save their ball or rescue Smalls from the coming doom of a stepfather. Every single maneuver failed, and they had lost all hope. 
They had given up hope, and they all went back home. But Benny, the Jet Rodriguez, decides to put the entire team on his back. Even though it was not his fault that the ball was hit over, and even though he wouldn't be experiencing the punishment from his father, all that is going through his mind are the last words that Babe Ruth tells him in a dream. (laughs) And he tells him that heroes are remembered, but legends never die. Church, let me tell you that we also had a Benny among us as well. He was a perfect man. He saw that no one could conquer this domain of sin and death. No one was able to climb the fence and pick us up and rescue us from our sins and from our death. So he took it upon himself, the risk of going into that dangerous pit. His disciples called him crazy, but in order to save the lives of his people, there was no going back. So he bore all our pain, all our sin, all our suffering like an ocean-like weight on his back. And he jumped over to the other side. But unlike Benny, this man would sacrifice his life to save us all. He who knew no sin would become, so, would become sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. And this man's name was Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. This man's name was Jesus. And after three days, Jesus would no longer be dead, but he would be alive in all power and might and victory. He would stand over sin and death and rule them once and for all. So when we call on the name of the Lord to be saved, Jesus, by his power and by his grace, grabs us and pulls us out of the domain of the beast. He pulls us out of the drowning waters. And by his grace, we are saved, not by anything we did on our own. Can I get an amen, church? And when we join him in the victorious, when we join him as victorious over death, we can put to death our old life. We can live as new creations by the power of the Holy Spirit given to us when we believe in him. We are no longer broken, but whole. We are no longer lost, but found. We are no longer chained to sin, but free in Christ. No longer drowning, but transformed like Christ by the Spirit. No longer dead, but alive forever and forever. Because of Christ, our great deliverer, we have endless reasons to celebrate what he has done for us. We can shout with joy and proclamation that God has done it. In him, we are not drowning to our death, but we are living for the fame of Jesus and his kingdom. True salvation requires a deliverer. Amen? So church, as we come to a close, I want to share two steps that we can take, two steps. First, we can repent because God will save you. You know, if you look at Jonah's prayer here, he cries out out to God and God hears him. He says he's going to die, but God saves him. It's really a messy, messy prayer. It's not really concrete. It's not really well put, but he just blurts out everything he is thinking to God. When we repent, it's not supposed to be picture perfect as well. 
When we repent, God wants us to come with all our baggage, all our difficulties, all our pains, and all our joys and celebrations. He wants to hear from us like a parent wants to hear from their child. Our repentance, it's supposed to be messy. So no matter where you are, what you have done, or situations you're in, God wants to listen to the cries of his children. God wants to save you. So come and repent of your sins. Repent of your brokenness. Cry out your hopes and your difficulties to God because God promises to hear you and to save you. And the second thing that we can do is celebrate because God has saved you. You know, church, we should be jumping up and down and spinning around for what God has been doing for us and what God has done for us. We need to sing with our outside voices. We need to pray prayers of thanksgiving and celebration and remind all of us every single day what God has done for us. God has rescued us from sin and death. What better news than that? You know, another way we celebrate is that we tell the good news to those around us. We tell our friends, we tell our neighbors, we tell anyone and whoever will hear us because this is the best news that we have heard. You know, in the Gospels, we see that when someone is healed from sickness or death or pain, they go out to their villages, to their towns, and they tell God, they tell others what God has done. God has saved us. And even after Jonah is then vomited out to dry land. He recognizes that he has been saved. And so then when he learns that difficult lesson, he can then go back to Nineveh and tell them of the same salvation that he had experienced himself. And so church, we are called to do that same thing. We are called towards repentance, but we're also called toward celebration. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have jumped that fence and you have grabbed us out and pulled us so that we can experience salvation, joy, and celebration in you. And so God, as we come today, as we look to repent and celebrate of what we um, have experienced in you, God, I pray that you may continue to lead us, remind us that you are our king and that you are the only one that saves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.